0: Morning, everybody. I want to invite uh, all our children to children's church? If you want to go, um, The teacher will meet you at the back, and they will escort you off. It's just a setting that's a little more age-appropriate for uh, children to learn the, the scriptures. Um, we adults, I'm sorry, we don't get snacks. Well, we kind of do. I mean, we're having communion today, so. Um, but it's not going to be, you know, the little goldfish or you know anything like that. Um, So I just want to start by welcoming our friends from uh, Revive AV. They're joining us today Um, so it's good to have uh, have them there and then we have some visitors too so um, welcome. Welcome everybody. Uh, Before we look at the word let's open with uh, with some prayer. Lord we uh, we do delight to sing of our Redeemer. Um, Your precious blood was shed for us. What a, a tremendous mystery. What a tremendous blessing. Thank you for caring for your people so much, Lord, that you would come and and rescue us. And uh, Lord, we're just grateful to be gathered together now this morning in your name to hear your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to apprehend what it is that you want us to see. May you be glorified in our worship this morning. Father, I pray for um, the Trinity folks who aren't able to join us today. There's a, a handful of folks who are sick. We pray for their restoration, for their healing that you would uh, strengthen them. And Lord, in this weakened state, I pray that they would just see your beauty, your power, your glory, and find that you are sufficient even when they're unable to do anything. And Father, I pray for Jen Carlson with the passing of her father. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with her and and the whole family. Uh, Lord, that um, those who know you would be comforted to know that uh, you are a good and a sovereign God. And uh, those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you might use... um, this passing to touch them on the shoulder and remind them of eternity, and have them ask some tough questions of themselves too. Uh, but in all things, Lord, we pray that the, the peace that surpasses understanding would be present with um, with Jen and her family. Father, we pray also for CareNet uh, this week as uh, they continue to not just oppose abortion in the Antelope Valley, but Lord, to care for women after the children are born, to educate. Um, husbands and wives and how to raise or men and women and how to raise these children and and provide care and, and uh, supplies and diapers and bottles and lord i just thank you so much that we have a ministry like that um, that that does continue to care even after the child is born and we pray that you would be working with uh, CareNet to uh, to meet the needs in the antelope valley lord for the churches in the antelope valley to um Uh, to support that ministry financially and with hands and feet on the ground as well. And uh, Lord, um, would you use them to rescue many people from the uh, horror of abortion, uh, children and women. Lord, would you please be with us now as we look into your word. Uh, I just pray that my words would um, be communicating what it is that you want us to hear this morning. Uh, Lord, speak to your people. And, uh, and speak to them clearly, we pray. In Christ's name, for his glory. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're, we're in Luke chapter 14. Um, my basic understanding of the gospel of Luke is he starts out with a statement. He's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he says, Theophilus, I want you to be sure of the things that you've been taught. Well, disciples are learners. Disciples are ones who learn from their master. So what I think Luke is doing is he's he's teaching through his gospel. He's, he's showing us these things are sure and true. These things about Jesus that you've heard, they're real. And he's saying that because he wants us to be better disciples. So as we've been going through the gospel of Luke, that's been the, the approach I've been taking, is he wants us to be better disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, so when we look at these uh, these different parts of the stories that he's telling, um, my question is, is repeatedly well, how am I a better disciple for knowing this? What am I going to learn from this? Um, and so f- today we're in chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14 is a dinner party. It starts out at the beginning with uh, it's a Sabbath day, and, and a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, so a bigwig, has invited Jesus to dinner. And uh, so uh, we're, we're going to finish up chapter 14 today. We're still at that dinner party, is, is what's going on. What happens in the end of 14 and on through 15 and forward is we go into this long string of parables. There's just This is parable-rich territory, if that's a phrase. Um, And you never hear Jesus leave the the dinner party. (laughs) But I'm assuming he did. So uh, this this dinner party is going to teach us uh, a few things today about what it means to be a disciple, what does it cost to be a disciple. Uh, So let's take a look at this first section. Um, Jim read it for us, but uh, just to point out some things uh, I'll read a little bit of it as we go through. So, last week Jesus had talked a, about a couple of things. He had brought up um, at the beginning. He he healed a man at the beginning of the uh, chapter 14. He healed a man on the Sabbath. And so I first read that and I thought, "What well, we're doing the Sabbath again?" But it really at this point it's not so much about the Sabbath. Uh, and you can tell because of how Jesus teaches. After that, he doesn't focus on what's lawful to do on the Sabbath and what's not. Where he goes with it is, look, I'm watching you people jockey for position at the table. You're trying to be in the head position. And so he looks at this, this man that he healed. He says, is this man not worthy to be healed? If you had your son or even an ox fallen in a, in a uh, well on the Sabbath, you'd go rescue him. Why can I not rescue this person? He's talking about ranking and ordering people. They had put this, this paralytic, or this, uh, he had dropsy, which is like a, an inflammation of a tissue, put them below an ox, for heaven's sake. So that's where he goes with this, is just because this person is, is got this disease doesn't make them a less of a person. So don't jockey for positions. You, you've got to see everybody as equal. And then after that, he, he looks to the owner of the house, the guy who threw the dinner party. He goes, next time you do this, don't invite a bunch of people who are going to invite you back because they're gonna invite you back and you've been paid in full. You got it. Instead, go out and invite the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor, the people who can't ever pay you back. That's how to do this. So he's talking about ranking and ordering people, seeing people as image bearers of God. That's where he went. And it became apparent as we've grown through this, he's talking about the kingdom of God, not just how to eat dinner. Although, you know, do that at a dinner party, for sure, that's wise counsel, but he's talking more, more broadly. He's talking about uh, eschatological issues, because he brought up in there, you do this, you invite these people who can't invite you back, you will be repaid at the, at the resurrection of the just. So he's speaking about more than dinner. Now, where we start this morning is after he does this teaching, one of those who's reclining at table with him says, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. What a weird thing to say. <laughs> He didn't really seem to connect with what was going on, but I think, he was, I think he is exactly connecting with what's going on. He's looking at Jesus, and Jesus had warned him, look, in the kingdom of God, it's not going to be like this. You're not going to jockey for position. The, the guy who's throwing the banquet is going to decide where you sit. And so this, this, I'm assuming he's a Pharisee. I probably will call him a Pharisee. It just says someone, uh, one who cl- reclined at table. He says, now, hold on, Jesus, time out. He's, he's going to debate him. This never goes well when people debate Jesus. It doesn't often come out well for them. He wants to debate Jesus on this. He goes, time out now. Anybody who eats kingdom, or bread in the kingdom of God is blessed, right? Isn't it great just to be in the kingdom of God? So if I get the seat at the head of the table, the person at the end is still getting bread. So, you know, don't lecture me about jockeying for position or thinking I'm important. Anybody in the, in the kingdom is going to get bread. It's good. It's the kingdom of God. I think that's where he goes with it. And I get that because of the way Jesus responds to him. So if this is what he's talking about, he's assuming, once again, I brought this up last week for our our visitors, I I think what he's anticipating, what these folks are anticipating the kingdom of God is going to look like, is the Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem, cleanse the temple, kick out the Romans, and establish the throne of David and vanquish all of his enemies, This is going to be Solomon's kingdom, David's kingdom, all rolled into one. It's going to be great. So who are they assuming is going to be blessed by this kingdom? The Jews. Because the Gentiles are going to get executed and thrown out. Any compromised Jews are going to be excluded. This Davidic king is going to come in and establish his throne. This is going to be great. Won't this be wonderful? So anybody who survives, anybody who's in that, is going to be blessed. Right? Jesus, isn't that how this works? When that came up last time, we, we said the answer is not yes or no. It's more complicated than that. And, and that's exactly what he does again. He, he doesn't answer, yes, everybody's blessed. So really, think about it for a second. Even with our understanding of what the kingdom of God is, everybody who eats bread in the kingdom of God, are they blessed? Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that sounds great. Does Jesus just look at him and go, yeah, yeah, exactly? No, he doesn't because the guy doesn't have the right understanding. He doesn't understand yet. The question isn't, will they be blessed? The question, who's in the kingdom? Who gets to be in that kingdom? So that's where Jesus goes with this, is he tells a parable. And this parable is the story of this big banquet. And this, this great man of the house has announced, I am going to create this big banquet, and you all are invited. And so everybody's like, yeah, cool, sounds great. Now, finally, it's it time for the banquet to get started, and he sends a servant out, and he says, go out and invite Bring the invited guests in. It's time for them to come in. And what do they do? Hop in the shower, shave really quick, slap on some aftershave, and zing, I'm in the banquet, right? (laughs) Um, Look, I just bought a field. I mean, banquet sounds good and everything. I bought a field, I'm gonna go check it out, okay? Please excuse me. Um, I just bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen, I gotta go take care of them. I can't just leave them out in the field. I gotta go, please excuse me. And the best one, hey, I just got married. (laughs) I can't come to your feast. I need to go be with my wife. We just got married, so please excuse me. And and these are the excuses that are being offered as they're being called in. Come into the banquet. The table is set. The food is ready. Come into the banquet, and they're making excuses. So the owner of the house is angry, and he says, all right, go out into the streets and alleys and grab people and bring them in. So not the invited guests, everybody else. Bring them in. And the servant says, sir we did that and there's still room at the table So he tells him, all right you go out into the roads and byways anybody you find out there you bring them into this this banquet they're coming in and all those invited people they're not touching a thing they're excluded so that's the parable where i think jesus goes with this what i think he's telling us is he, he's looking at who was invited well the pharisees were invited these are think of who the pharisees are they are the religious orthodox of the day. They worship on the Sabbath in an appropriate manner. They revere the scriptures. They have tons of Bible memorized. They fast three times a week. They pray lengthy prayers. These are the people that you would look at and go, man, those are the churchmen I want. They're dedicated. They're really part of the church. These are the folks. And Jesus says not one of them is going to eat a piece of bread in this, in this banquet, nothing. Instead, go out into the streets. So all the other people, the, the dirty folks, the people who have to work for a living, who don't just get to sit and study scripture all day, the people who are struggling, who are lame, who are injured, go out and grab them, bring them in. As a matter of fact, he even says the, uh, the lame, the blind, um, the crippled, and the poor, which is what he brought up previously. When he told the, the, the guy who was throwing the dinner party, he said, don't invite people who can invite you back. He said that exact same list. It's the same people. And now he's saying the 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 owner of the house is gonna go out and grab those people. Those are the kind of people who you should invite in because the master of the banquet is gonna do that. He's gonna draw them in. And then the next thing he says is go into the streets and byways. And I think what he's hitting at there is um, in, in, earlier in chapter 13, he talked about those coming from the east and west, north and south in the kingdom of God. He said, In the kingdom, you're gonna be upset because you're gonna be excluded. You're gonna see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting there. You're gonna see all the prophets sitting there. You're gonna see people come from the east, west, north, and south. So I think that's what he's getting at when he says, go into the roads and byways. That's where you get the people from the east, west, north, and south, north, <laughs> north and south, and you bring them in, is, is from there. So these are the people who are gonna be in this in this feast, in this great uh, banquet that, that the king has thrown. So who would you have, if you're sitting there listening to this, who would you have assumed was going to be in the banquet? And who would you have said, there's no way, they don't measure up. Gentiles? Really? I thought the king was going to get rid of them. The, the, the poor, the, the broken, the prostitutes, the money changers, the people who work on the Sabbath, that, surely they'll be excluded, Right? It's got to be these religious orthodox, these people who look so squeaky clean, right? That's who's going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus puts that all up on end. And he says, they're not going to get a scrap, but you can come in. So the first part of what he's saying is, he says, you misunderstand, again, who's invited to the feast, who is in the kingdom of God. Yes, everybody who eats bread in the kingdom of God truly, richly, deeply is blessed, but don't think that's you, is what he's telling them. What he says is you can look religiously squeaky clean. You can have everything ironed out. Have all your, your T's crossed, I's dotted, your theology all laid out, and you can wind up being excluded. That's, that's pretty chilling. That, that's really kind of chilling. So, well, Jesus, get us out of this. <laughs> you put us in, this, in this, this bad spot. Get us out of this. How do we get into this kingdom? How do we get that invite? How do we get pulled in? And that's where he goes next with this next thing is he looks to the crowd, a great crowd accompanied him, and he turned to them. So it could be that Jesus has gotten up and left at this point, and that's what it means by a crowd accompanied him. It, it sounds like they went with him as he's going, and he turns to them and talks because there's a big crowd. Or it could mean that there was a crowd that accompanied him to the house, and so he's laying on the recliner eating, and he looks over and starts speaking out the window or out the door or something like that. You know why it's not mentioned? Because it's not important. So why did I just waste time talking about it? The important part is Jesus looks to a large crowd and says, I have something to say to you. Listen to this. If you want to be invited to the feast, this is what you have to do. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, or father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be to my disciple. So the, the thing here is, to be invited in, you have to be a disciple of Jesus. That's how you're in the kingdom. Now, I think it's helpful at this point to kind of back up, what do we mean by the kingdom of God? What do you think that means? It, it, if you look through different theologians at different times, it has different meanings. Some people say it's the church. The kingdom of God is the church. Um, some people would say it is... Uh, God's sovereign um, exercise over the nations in social welfare and helping people and and bringing the kingdom forward. Um, If you look at the whole scripture as far as how the scriptures define what the kingdom of God is, it's impossibly complex. There are scriptures where Jesus says, don't look out there for the kingdom of God. It's inside. It's internal. And then there's other places where he says the kingdom of God, it's going to take over all the entire world, all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he says, you're looking for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst now. And then there's times where he says, when the kingdom comes, this is what it's going to look like. Do you see how complex that is? It's it's internal, it's external. It's now, it's not now. It's come, it hasn't come. How on earth are we supposed to answer this? (laughs) How do we include all of this together? One of my favorite theologians, especially on this topic, is George Eldon Ladd. And in the 1950s, he did a lot of study on the issue of the kingdom of God. And the way Ladd explains the kingdom of God is he says it's not um, a, uh, a territory that you go to, like uh, the, the uh, United Kingdom. right? That's England, uh, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Uh, that's the United Kingdom, and it's a geographical area that's not what the Bible means by a kingdom. It's not necessarily a geographical area because what we'll see in Luke is he's going to tell a parable about a man who goes off to a foreign country to get his kingdom. And after he has got his kingdom, he comes back and he starts ruling. So if he had to go get the kingdom, he should have stayed if it was a geographical area. What Lad says is what this indicates is it's talking about a sovereign rule. It's talking about a sovereign authority over over, um, something. That's what it means by kingdom. When we say kingdom of God, what we're talking about is God's sovereign rule over all of creation. That's why it's internal, as it starts by changing people's hearts. And it will one day be external when the kingdom comes in its fullness and Jesus reigns on this earth. It will be in its fullness. That's why it's now and not yet. So that's how we incorporate all this. So when Jesus here is talking about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about Um, some earthly ruler reigning in Jerusalem he's talking about the sovereign extension of God's will over all of creation bringing it all right back to where it should be where it was supposed to be from the beginning so he says to be my disciple is to be in that kingdom because if you're my disciple you're now in line with God's sovereign will that he's carrying out in the world I am going to come and carry away your sins through my death on the cross I am going to be your righteousness so that you can be right with God. So the kingdom comes through Jesus in the person of Jesus. So that's why he says here, when, ask, when we're dealing with that question of the kingdom, he says, to be my disciple. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Now look at the conditions of this. You have to hate your mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, your very own life. You have to take up your cross daily and follow him. Um, the word for hate there it's a Greek word that means hate it just means hate so what's he talking about I'm supposed to hate my mom and dad I'm supposed to hate my my children how is that right there are plenty of scriptures that talk about honor your mother and father that's the, the fifth commandment right honor your mother and father um that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Mark 7, Jesus confronts this very issue of of not caring for your parents. Um, He talks about this issue of what's called korban, where a child could have elderly parents and say, you know, I'm supposed to take care of them, but I'm declaring korban, which means Everything that they were entitled to, I'm giving to God. Aren't I holy? Look how holy I am. I'm going to give it to the temple, and you guys are on your own. And Jesus calls him out on that. Said you can't do that by issuing this this korban, this tradition of men. You're upending the commandments of God. So how is it that Jesus could look at us, look us right in the face, and say, "Hate your mother and father," and and no qualifications on it? Well, one of the things that might be the fact that he's using hate to mean something slightly different than what we mean. When you think of hate, when I think of hate, what I think is a strong dislike, an opposition to trying to get rid of, that kind of thing. Um, If you were were to serve me liver, I want you to know, I love you, I hate liver. (laughs) I shiver when I get liver. I hate it. I actively have a strong emotional revulsion to it. I don't have that feeling when I see my mom. I love my mom. So am I in violation of what Jesus said? Am I really a disciple if I love my mom? Well, we have to understand what does he mean by hate here? And if we take a a little bit more biblical view of the word hate or the action of hatred, um, especially coming at it from a Hebrew mindset, um, I think we'll get a better understanding of what he means by to hate all of these people. If you look at the, the uh, um, prophet Malachi, at the beginning of Malachi, he says, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. So what does that mean that he, he loved Jacob and he hated Esau? Um, if you look at Esau, when we were in, last in Genesis, oh, so long, over a year ago now, doesn't that seem wild? Um, when we were last in Genesis, we looked at Esau... And Jacob reuniting. And and what was going on in Esau's family? We looked at his genealogy. Esau is having children and children and children. There are princes. There are chiefs. There are kings. There's a kingdom coming out of him. And yet God says, Esau, I hated. That doesn't sound too bad to be hated by God, (laughs) if if that's how he's hating. What's he mean there? Well, the the way we unpack that better to understand what he means by saying, I hated Esau, is to look at Romans chapter 9, because that's where Paul picks that same thing up and explains it to us. In Romans 9, Paul says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and the context he's using it in is Jacob I chose and Esau I rejected. So I passed over Esau, even though he was the firstborn, and I chose Jacob, and Jacob is the one through whom I'm going to put my king, my uh, covenant. He's the one who will carry my covenant forward. So. For Jesus to say, hate your mother and father, doesn't mean wage war against them. It doesn't mean never talk to them again and cut them off and and be rude to them every time you see them. What he's saying is, don't prefer them. Don't choose them over me. So if you're called to be a Christian, if, if Christ is calling you and you say, I would love to come to this banquet, this banquet you're offering, I can't because my mom's not going to be happy about it. My dad may never speak to me again. What Jesus is saying here is, hate your mother and father and love me. Choose me above them. Don't cut them off. Don't be their enemy. But you have to prefer me over them or you can't be my disciple. If, you're, if your children are going to get mad because you become a Christian because you start following Jesus Christ, you have to stop preferring them and prefer Jesus. Jesus. Otherwise, you can't be his disciple. You can't play it on both sides. So then the next thing he says is you have to take up your cross and follow me. Daily take up your cross. Every day. Now, we have turned taking up your cross into just such a sweet little platitude. Um, uh, Take up your cross. Uh, You know, I have this in-law who is just really impossible to be with. And, well, they're just my cross to bear. Or, you know, when I go to work, my boss is really inept and well, it's just, that's just the burden I have to carry, you know, that's the cross I have to bear. That couldn't be further from the imagery Jesus just painted here. What he's speaking of is the crossbar would be laid on the shoulders of the condemned. And it's heavy, it's not a, it's not a light, hollow piece of wood that you nail to a wall, this is a beam that's laid on their shoulders, and they have to carry it to the place of execution as a form of public shame. They, they have been judged, they have been condemned, and now they're walking with this beam on their shoulder, carrying it to the place of their execution. So when they arrive, they can be laid on it and have nails driven through their hands into that beam, then hoisted up onto the cross and held there so that they, they, they basically suffocate as they can't hold themselves up and it cuts off the, the airflow to their throat, and they die with this horrible pain in their hands horrible pain in their feet, and then the suffocation trying to stay alive. It is a disgusting way to die. The Romans didn't even talk about it. The only way we have any idea about uh, the, the best information we have from that time about crucifixion is from the Bible. The Romans were so disgusted by the practice, they wouldn't even discuss it among themselves. That's how ugly it is. So Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow after me daily. He's saying pick up the chemicals of your lethal injection and walk after me. Take the electrodes that they're gonna attach to you to electrocute you in the chair and follow me. Pick up the rope that you're gonna be hung from, hold it out in front of you and come after me. That's the image here. And if you don't do that, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That's some pretty graphic stuff. That's, That's pretty hard to look at that and understand what are you talking about? How am I supposed to do that? How do I take up my cross and and daily follow you? Well, what he's saying again is this idea of preference. You don't take the comforting things in your life and say, well, I'm not gonna sacrifice those to be identified or to to know Jesus Christ or to live the way that he's, he's thinking. When they would take the cross and walk to their place of execution, it wasn't like in the Green Mile where it's got this linoleum corridor, they walk down and and there's nobody there. This is through the public square. This is through the city. So as you're carrying this cross, everybody sees that's a condemned person. They're gonna die the most vile death that you could imagine. Serves two purposes. Number one, it humiliates the person who's gonna be executed. And second, it reminds the public this is what happens if you step out of line. So it's a pretty graphic thing. For us, people walk down a linoleum corridor to a room where they're going to be executed, and nobody sees it until they get in there, and there's some witnesses. Executions used to be much more public. So Jesus is saying here live your life as my disciple, publicly bearing your shame, bearing the accusation this is a Christ follower. Put that on your shoulders and walk through the city streets and let people see. Bear your cross. So who's in the kingdom? What does it cost to get in the kingdom? How do you become a disciple of Christ? It's a pretty high standard. It demands an awful lot of you. So then Jesus says, if this is the standard, if this is the, the layer, the level that we have to attain to, Think about that. Think about it carefully. And he uses this illustration of somebody who builds a tower. Before they start working on it, they calculate the cost. Am I going to be able to afford to finish this? If I'm not, I better not start it. If you're going to renovate your house, if you're going to say, I'm going to tear out the kitchen, put a new kitchen in, you don't start when you've got $4,000. You have to make sure you have enough to finish that kitchen. Otherwise, you're going to be living out of cardboard boxes for a while. The, the large church we went to in, in Illinois, they did a massive renovation of the facility so they could fit more people in. They were beginning to grow to capacity, and so they did some reconfigurations. And I can remember being in elders' meetings where we were looking at spreadsheet after spreadsheet about how we're going to afford this. We very carefully sat down and calculated, will we have enough money to complete this project? Given present offerings and, and current uh, finances and that kind of stuff, can we do it? So that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, make sure you can finish this. The demands are high. Um, I thought this was kind of cool. The, the modern equivalent of this is um, in 1967, King Hussein of Jordan uh, started building a palace on the West Bank of Israel. That was his plan. He was going to build this palace. Well, the Six-Day War happened, and guess what? The Jews took over the West Bank. So you've got this half-started building with uh, wrought iron sticking out girders and all this stuff. You know what the Jews did? They left it, they left it sit. And I think it may still be there today. The idea is if anybody comes against us, we want them to see that and and, and cause them to ask, am I gonna have enough to finish this? So it it was just a really poignant picture to leave this half-finished palace sitting there saying, this is what happens when our enemies try to take over our territory. It's a scary kind of thing. And that's where Jesus goes with this. If a king is going to face an oncoming onslaught from another kingdom, he's looking and going, I got 10,000, they got 20,000. Am I going to be able to fight this battle and win? Have we got enough provisions in the city Will we be able to withstand and take out enough of their troops so that we can actually overcome them? Or should I just raise the, right, the white flag right now? So that's, that's where Jesus goes with this. He wants us to say, He's calling us to be his disciples, but he's saying, before you do that, understand what's required here. Understand the the, the level of commitment that I'm asking for. It's high. It's not look like the Pharisees. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had it nailed. Everything, every law ironed out. They had answers for everything. They had laws built on laws so that you couldn't violate that law. They had the righteousness nailed. And Jesus says, you have to be better than that. Are you? It's a tough question. Who could could beat them? Who could out-Pharisee a Pharisee? In Matthew chapter, or I mean, sorry, uh, John chapter 6, Jesus had this long preaching. He's followed by a whole bunch of people. He's a huge crowd. And he gets to this point, which is poignant because we're going to have communion. he says, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. That's the requirement. And the crowd looks at him and goes, what? This is a hard teaching. Who can deal with this? And they leave. And so Jesus' response is to turn to his disciples and go, are you going to take off too? What insanity is that? What kind of church growth program is that? Chasing people away. What Jesus is looking at here is he wants real committed disciples, not people who are just giving him lip service. So that's why he just told us, if you want to be his disciple, you have to hate your mother, your father, your children, your relatives, indeed your own life. You have to hate it. You have to prefer him over those things. If you want to be his disciple, you have to daily... Every morning when you get out of bed, you put on your slippers, you you pull on your robe, you pick up your cross and put it on your shoulders. Daily, you have to do that and then follow him. And that's what it means to be his disciple. The cost is high. It's really super high. But he says at the end of this, after he talks about these things, he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And and don't forget, who is he speaking to at this point? He has looked to the crowd that's following him. And he says, unless you renounce everything you have, you can't be my disciple. So what does he mean by renounce all that you have? Um, Are we all supposed to turn everything in and, and, you know, sell our house, our cars, everything? That's not the biblical picture. If you look at how Jesus told people about coming into the kingdom, there's only one person he said, sell everything you have. Get rid of it all and follow me. And that was a rich young ruler who had one problem. He nailed it. Follow the commandments, right? Follow all the Ten Commandments. He says, Lord, I have done this from my youth up. Yeah, sure. What about number ten? Covetousness. So Jesus says, sell everything. And the man went away sad. He couldn't do it. So when Jesus says, renounce all that you have, he's not saying, "Be, be the rich young ruler. What he's telling you is, hate your mother and father. If, G- if something is coming between you and discipleship and Jesus Christ, are you willing to let that go? Are you going to renounce it? Are you going to say, I want no more of that? I will let that go. Whatever that is. That's the call here. Wow. I just keep watching the price tag get higher and higher. What's the payoff, Jesus? Is it just bread? Well, the last part it's kind of odd. It's another one of these things that stands out as, why is that there? And generally speaking, if you're doing Bible study and you hit something, you go, why is that there? It's because you don't understand something else. The, the Bible writers aren't too clumsy when they're doing this. So this last part kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. That just stands out as an odd answer at the end. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. So what's he getting at? Well, first of all, salt doesn't lose its saltiness. It's sodium chloride. It doesn't turn into something else. It's just salt. Um, I saw a thing, there was, have you ever seen the Himalayan salt, the pink salt? There was one that had on the front of the jar 250 million years in the making. And then at the bottom it said, "expires in Three years. It's like, boy, they got it just in the nick of time. 250 million years, and I'm just now getting it. Wow. If you see salt with an expiration date, go check the sale bin and see if they're selling it off because it's past its expiration date. Salt don't expire. That's the point. Is it doesn't expire, it doesn't turn into something else. So what's Jesus mean here when he says salt is good, but if it loses its taste. How will it be restored? Um, There are a couple of different things that are thought of here. I'm gonna kind of cover them, and then I wanna tell you how I think he means it, how Luke means it in this instance. Um, The salt that was used in Israel was generally speaking mined from the area around the Dead Sea. And so when they would grab that salt, it had salt because it's the Dead Sea, but it also had a lot of minerals in it. uh, Jimson and some other base minerals like that. So they would bring the salt, and that would be the salt that they would use. Well, there was times where if you had it in a, a container and water got in, the water would cause the salt to evaporate and leave a bunch of gymson and those other minerals. And so what they would do is they take that and throw that out in the field. It would be a great fertilizer, putting those kind of minerals into the soil. So maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. If the salt loses its saltiness, what do you do? Well, you, you can't put salt back into it to make it salty. You'd throw it out. Otherwise, you're diluting the salt that you have. So that's generally how that's thought of. So what, he's, what um, uh, a lot of folks, when they handle this verse, would say is, you know, when you get too much junk in your life, it, it begins to diminish your saltiness. So don't get too much junk in your life. And, and I think that's, that's a fair application. If that's the application you want to take this morning, God bless you, get rid of the junk in your life, and be salty. That's great. What I think Luke is going for here is something slightly different. I think he's answering the question that we've all been asking. Okay, Jesus, you're asking a lot of me out of this discipleship thing. What's the payoff? What do I get out of this? If I follow you, you're asking me to give up my entire life. What do I get out of this? And so Jesus looks and he says, salt's good, but if salt loses its taste, it's useless. Now, that idea of salt, there's a couple of places in the Bible, just a few. I did a study on this, and it's frustratingly few places where salt's really discussed But there are things called the covenant of salt. David's covenant was referred to as a covenant of salt. And what that meant was it was an everlasting covenant. It was a covenant that would not ever pass away. It It was preserved. The salt of the covenant was going to preserve the covenant and make it last. So what Jesus may be looking at here is the preservation that I'm offering you will not fade. The kingdom of God is not going to lose its saltiness. If, you, if your salt can lose its saltiness, the kingdom can fail. That's that idea of a covenant of salt. So what he's telling them is, if you want to be my disciple, the cost is tremendous. Pay it. It's worth it. You get to come into the feast of the kingdom of God. And the covenant I'm offering you is preservative. You will not fade. The covenant will not go away. It will last forever forever. I think that's the promise at the end here is come into the kingdom, come into the feast. The, the, the servants are going out into the fields, into the, the, the streets and the byways, into the city town, the city centers, and saying, Come in, come in, the feast is open. Come in now. Now is the time. But don't look at the kingdom. Don't look at the feast and say, Well, I got it all figured out. I'm good. Um, got the religion thing down, go to church on Sunday, read my Bible occasionally, pray once in a while. I'm good. I got it. Um, That's the Pharisees. They had it all ironed out. They fasted three times a week. How many times times a week do you fast? (laughs) Uh, Well, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. How you doing? That's the call of the disciple, is to come in because the master of the house has called you in. So don't make the excuse, well, you know, I would like to come, but I've got this going on in my life right now, and I just can't sort it out. And you know, Don't worry about that five, five yoke of oxen. If they run away from you, what you gain in the kingdom is so much better. Yeah, but you know, I just, I bought this land and don't worry about the land. If somebody goes and steals it from you, what you gain is so much better. That's the call. And then the promise at the end is you can't lose it. You've come into the feast. You've been seated at the table by the master. The food is ready. Salt will not lose its saltiness. It's a guarantee. So today, right now, if you feel the call of discipleship, respond the door is open there's a day coming when that door to that feast is going to close it won't be open forever if you hear the call you're being called respond to the call be the disciple but don't do it in a flighty way think about what he said about what is it going to cost me can I build this tower will I finish this this renovation can I rebuild this engine or is it going to sit for 87 years cuz I can't finish it? Count the cost. And then ask yourself is it worth it? Is what is what is being asked of me worth the benefit of what I'm about to receive? The salt won't lose its saltiness. That's why when Jim read that last phrase, I just kind of gasped for a second. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a prophetic call from jesus saying if you hear my voice now is the time if you're able to hear this respond now he who has ears to hear let him hear let's pray lord jesus we are um grateful to take up our cross and follow you because, Lord, in the shadow of your cross, ours is minor. You bore our burdens. You took our sins upon yourself. You carried them to the cross, and you died the death that we deserve to die for them. Lord, in the shadow of your cross, ours seems light. We're not going to bear the sins of the world. You will. So Lord, we we come together as struggling disciples, confessing our imperfections, confessing our stumbling, our our tripping on the way to the table, um, spilling the milk once we sit down. But Lord, our table matters are not what bring us to the table. It's the grace of the owner of the house who has said, come and seat, eat with me, enjoy the, the blessings that I've prepared for you. So, Lord, I just pray for all of us, those of us who have been your followers for years. Lord, would you renew that call in us to hate our relatives, to hate our own life, and follow you. Lord, would you renew in us that desire to pick up daily our cross, lay it on our shoulders, and bear it with you. And, Lord, if there are some with us that haven't decided to become your disciple, I pray that they have ears to hear that you would bore the holes in the sides of their head so that they might hear your call. Lord, that you might open their heart to feel the promise of the feast that waits and the surety that salt won't lose its saltiness. Lord, help us to stumble after you, to follow you, to be your disciples. We pray in Christ's name, amen.